Hey y'all, good morning. Uh, we're going to go ahead and get started this morning. Welcome to Good Crave Baptist Church. Um, a couple brief announcements this morning. Hey Jerry, um, in that we do have small group this week, small groups on Wednesday night, uh, and we are working, we actually have started an email chain about the Tuesday night small groups, so get ready, friends, we're going to have announcements about that shortly, but it's not happening this week. So, um, Wednesday night, small group, uh, and then Friday, Shower Friday is on, right Phil? Yep. Okay, Shower Friday is on. If you're experiencing homelessness or if you want to be involved in our church's ministry to people experiencing homelessness, come talk to us afterwards about what the church does in that and ways that you can take part. Um, other than that, uh, please pray for Miss Elma, who has a fever this morning. Uh, anything else we're, we're praying for that people want to mention this morning before we get started? Well, let me pray for us and we'll get, get started. Father God, Lord, we come to you this morning, God, hoping to hear from you, Lord, hoping that you will unveil yourself to us this morning, God, as you do in our passage that we're preaching on today. Lord, we want to see your glory. I don't want tomorrow to be the same as all the other days. Lord, I want you to move and change and work in my life. God, I want... And even saying that, I'm just remembering all the ways that you've moved in, in past days, Lord. But God, please meet us here this morning. Lord, as I always pray, I just want, I want you to change us in every way that we most deeply need to be changed this morning. God, that we would not be the same, that you would work in our hearts. Lord, that you would sanctify us. God, that you would transfigure us from one degree of glory to another. Lord, and we pray for the sick in the church, God, for Miss Alma, Lord, for Michelle this morning, for Mama Rose. Uh, Lord, we pray for healing. God, and we pray in confidence, knowing that you are able and that you will raise up and heal us all. God, and you're perfectly able to reach down into these days and heal us now. God, and we pray as you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Good morning, everybody. We're going to read um, from the Word and pray together. So if you have our psalm this morning...
in Jesus' perspective, but ultimately it's all about the love of God, which is far greater than our love and ultimately what it's based on, regardless of our ability to love Christ well or to do anything perfectly because of what God has done and because of his reliability. We know that we can find assurance and salvation in him. Amen.
Father, we thank you for allowing us to gather here today in your presence and worship you. And the Lord, we love us. We ask that you uh, keep your hand of protection upon us here in this ministry. That as the blessings flow in, we can pull the blessings back out. Uh, we also are keeping in prayer your, your people, Israel, and the suffering.
Again, everybody, please uh, please go with me if you will to the book of Matthew in the New Testament, chapter 17. We're uh, passing out Bibles for those who want them. You can just raise your hand, someone will bring one to you. Uh, Jake, thank you. We have been in a series through the book of Matthew looking into the person and work of Jesus and his teaching on the coming kingdom of God. Two weeks ago, uh, we talked a lot about Star Wars for some reason, and then uh, we also talked about what defiles a person, being less about what goes into a person's body than what comes out of their mouth. Our words reveal the state of our hearts, and in Jesus' embrace of a woman who cried out to him for healing in a communion feast like the one that we're about to take, Gentiles were invited into the people of God, and we saw God's love for all the nations. Last week, we heard a call from Christ to forsake the lives that we have built, the facades we have constructed to find real and abundant life in him. In short, we are far too easily pleased, you and I, with the things of this world. For every one person I've met as a pastor, just getting real with y'all, for uh, in, the, in the, honestly, 15 years that I have worked in church work, for every one person in life whose desires are too strong, who needed to curb the things they wanted in life. I have met probably a dozen people who seem to be content with breathing to death, who, who need to be roused as if some, from sleep to want some, something more than just existence out of life. There is forgiveness. There is love. There is mission. There is meaning. There is real life in Christ. This morning, we get a small glimpse of the glory hidden in Christ. And even that small glimpse is enough to terrify us. It's enough to make us fall to the ground. Um, if you will, please stand as we read this morning. Matthew chapter 17. I'm going to start in verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces, and they were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all can sit. Thank you. Pray with me briefly. Father God, I pray as I always do, Lord, that no matter what I say, God, that what you administer to people's hearts and minds this morning, Lord, would be your truth in your word today. God, because we know your truth will set us free, and we desperately long to be free. 
pray this in Jesus' name. So we know you hear us. Amen. As a whole, this passage is about the glory of God, how we long for it, but we can't really bear much of it. And it's about truth. The truth that lies just on the other side of the way things seem. It's also about work and prayer and how both are necessary. We always want to ascend into the glory of God and stay. But we can't, not yet. Which is why Christ came to us in the flesh. What we see in this passage is everything of which Christ emptied himself in order to be with us. And incredibly, everything he's making us to be. Those of us who are in Christ. Little by little, day by day. Glory is a word that is really better picture than, pictured than defined. You can see it here when Jesus' face shines like the sun. That's glory. Uh, in short, it, it's, it's the perfection of God. Really, it's, it's, his, it's his overwhelmingness, the overwhelmingness of God. Too bright to look at, too vast to fully know, too perfect to fit into our broken world, too good to really bear. <clears throat> Have you ever thought about why so many of the most Christ-like people who've lived in the world have been martyred, the prophets, the apostles, and all of the thousand, thousand saints through the ages and in our own age, some of whom we know and some of whom are only known by God. Why do we always kill the prophets? There's something about goodness that we can't bear, and that's something God calls glory. We can't bear it, but we long for it, and when we actually taste it, the smallest drop of it, we know that it's more of life than we have ever really known. Here in our passage, we see Christ in his glory, which is just to say that we see him as he truly is without anything hidden. You are misreading this passage if you are focused on the disciples and their mountaintop worship experience in the way that we usually talk about mountaintop experiences of worship. For one, uh, Matthew uses exactly one word to describe the disciples' experience, and that word is terror. That is not exactly what you were going for day three of youth camp. Um, even more importantly, though, ever and always, Matthew's focus is on Christ himself. And I would encourage you, both in your reading of this passage and just in your faith, in your life in general, to do the same. To focus yourself not on your own discipleship, but on Jesus if you're constantly concerned with yourself, whether you're on one of the mountains of life or in some valley slogging through mess, if you are constantly looking at yourself, you are going to miss life itself. The real life of the world is not your own, but it's Christ's. Life breaking through all around you, just under the surface of semblance. In essence, this is a scene that we have seen several times before. Christ goes up to a mountain to pray. This should be familiar. For us already in the book of Matthew. It's something he does often. Uh, the difference here in this passage is not that Jesus goes up a mountain, not that he seeks to be alone to pray. The difference is that he brings people with him. Because the scene is so common, you have to wonder if this sort of transfiguration is common. This incredible breaking through of the glory of God. Is this always what happens with Jesus in the wilderness when he prays? Only this time Peter, James, and John are there. Peter asked to stay on the mountain. 
to build booths or tents or shelters, uh, basically just temporary housing. And Peter gets a lot of criticism for wanting to stay, but wouldn't you want to do the same? If you were Peter or Moses or anyone else who's ever been on the side of the mountain of the glory of God and glimpsed him pass by in the cloud, wouldn't you want to stay? Notice in all of the accounts of the transfiguration, which appears in each gospel, notice that Christ never criticizes Peter's reaction. He never says anything about Peter wanting to build booths and stay. In fact, I would argue Christ's greatest longing is not just for Peter, James, and John, but for each of us to be able to live on the mountain of his glory, to be able to abide his glory. And in some senses, this is the hope of our faith, that one day we would be able to live in peace with the Lord of glory in our midst, unveiled, Christ our sustenance, Christ our light. One beautiful detail that Matthew includes that none of the other gospel writers do. After this whole scene, after the voice from the cloud in verse 17, Jesus comes to the disciples who are terrified and falling up, fallen on the ground. He comes to them and it says he touches them. He helps them up from where they had fallen in terror. Jesus, no longer at this point transfigured. He tells them once again, just as he does when he walks them on the water, he tells them, don't be afraid. And once again, Jesus empties himself of glory. He chooses, just as he did in the incarnation in the first place, to empty himself of glory and come to us because we were not able to stay with him. Just as he came to dwell with us in the first place, and I would argue for the same reason, the transfiguration of Jesus, he leaves behind his glory and his rights in order to come down to us. The apostles look back up and they say, it was just Jesus, as they had always known him. It's not out of condemnation for Peter that Jesus leaves his glory. It's out of love for him. It's why he leaves behind his glory for each of us. It would be good for Christ to stay on the mountaintop, on his throne, in his glory. It would be good for Jesus, but the rest of us would be lost. It's out of love for each of us that Christ comes down from the mountain of his glory. Look at the disciples in the passage. They are terrified. Fallen to the ground, hiding their faces. They can't bear much of this. We can't ascend to him, so he condescends to us. Thinking about how to explain this moment throughout this week, my, my mind went, as it so often does these days, I don't know why, to uh, being a parent, to raising children, my experience as a father. This desire to bring your children into the deeper things of life, into the deeper things of God, that is a strong desire as a parent. You want to share all of the deeper things of life with them. But you have to be so careful because they can't take much of it, not at first. They have to grow into the life you want to give them. If you try to bring them into the deeper things of life before their time, you can terrify them. If you throw them headlong into life before they're ready, you can destroy them. Think about it for a moment. Take one instance 
marriage, for instance. Now, I have no idea whether my children, either of them, will be given the gift of singleness or the gift of marriage or when they're given either gift when, they, when it's offered that they'll accept it. But let's just say for a moment, a pleasant fiction in my mind, that my son does one day enter into a Christian marriage and has a family. In one sense, in one sense, if that is his future, there is really nothing I want more in my life to draw him into those deeper things. To see him playing with his own children, just to even imagine that kind of fills my soul. It's how the prophet Zechariah pictures the new Jerusalem, the kingdom come. He says, old men will sit and watch young children playing in the streets of Jerusalem. But before AJ is ready for any of that, he has to grow in so many ways. For him to attempt any of those things right now, marriage, bearing children, leaving our home, he's eight, by the way, if you don't know us. Uh, each of those things, each of those things, every last one of those things right now in his life would destroy him in horrendous ways. I don't even really want to think about him experiencing those things right now, as I know in many places in the world, children often do. My heart breaks for them. That is the stuff of nightmares as a parent. The most I can do for him right now is just to let him watch us in our marriage, caring for our new child, interacting with my own parents. That's all he can take right now of marriage and family without being destroyed. I try to tell him everything I can in age-appropriate ways of what might it be like in his future should that happen. The glory of the Lord is that way. It's everything God wants us to enter into, but not before we have grown to the point where we're able to bear it. It's not by accident that Matthew describes the glory of the transfigured Christ saying that he shines like the sun. Like sunlight or water, our biggest need as humans is to take in the glory of God, but too much or in the wrong way, and it destroys us. But may he make his face to shine on us all the same, and may he form us into a people who can live one day in the midst of his glory. The word for transfiguration here is, is used very is used seldomly in the New Testament. It's, it's kind of a rare word. Once in Romans chapter 12, Paul urges, rather than conforming day by day to the pattern of this world, he urges us to be transformed, to be transfigured instead, day by day, into a glory like that of Christ on this mountain. So he uses the word once in Romans, and then once again he uses it in 2 Corinthians 3 which I'm going to quote at length. Paul writes, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, are being transfigured into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So we see in Paul 
that Peter's desire to stay on the mountain, to converse with Moses and Elijah, is the desire that Christ shares for him, that he would be able to do that. It's one of Christ's deepest desires to restore humanity to glory. But we have to grow first, or else in this passage it will terrify us, or otherwise destroy us. Christ desperately longs to set us free in every way. But as with children, the difference between setting someone free and abandoning him is readiness. To really be free instead of just lost, we have to grow. We also see in Paul a direct reference to Moses. It's, it's a connection that Matthew intends as well. And the reason I read that longer passage is that I wanted it to, to spell it out explicitly. <clears throat> to understand the transfiguration, you have to remember the Exodus story. God performed great miracles through Moses to show his power. And Moses led the people of God out of slavery by a pillar of cloud and fire to a high mountain, just like the high mountain, just like the divine cloud in our passage today. And there in thunder and in, and in voice, the Lord showed his glory to Moses. The Exodus reference tells us several things. One, that reference together with the appearance of Elijah and Moses tells us it's, it's a message that Christ's teachings are not opposed to the law and the prophets by any means. Rather, they are a fulfillment of both, just as a promise of words is fulfilled by later action. And the action is more real than that word of the promise. Two, the Exodus reference shows us the reason why God is revealing his glory in this moment and why Christ comes to us in the first place. Matthew, throughout the entire book, over and over again, points to the Exodus story to show us that God is doing all of this, just as he did in Exodus, to set us free. We are in slavery to sin, and as people who were enslaved in Egypt, or, or just as his people were enslaved in Egypt, and this is how he's bringing us up out of our sins. Through Christ's own death and resurrection, he is leading us to a land, a kingdom, where he can finally, we can finally dwell in glory and in peace, both and at the same time. And when we are unable to reach that land of our own accord, he left it and came to us to lift us up, the new and greater Moses, to lead us out of our sins into dwelling with him, just as he does with the disciples in our passage where Jesus comes and touches them and tells them, Rise and have no fear. Two things. As we seek to take the word of the Lord this God, uh, the word of the Lord this morning and let it comprise us, just like the bread and cup we're about to eat and drink. One, we have the first practical takeaway I want you to take from this. We have to grow spiritually. We have to grow spiritually. And the transfiguration shows us both our need to grow and our destination. The glory of God, like the shining of the sun, will eventually be our light. But before we can bear it, we have to be remade. We need to admit that we have done wrong, that we are more sinful and have done more damage in the lives of the people that we love than we could even know. And at the same exact time, that we are more loved in Christ, more forgiven, in him, more welcomed in him than we would ever think possible. I know our culture says to really live life, you have to be true to yourself and not allow anything or anyone to change you. Christianity's call is to forget yourself 
and allow Christ day by day to transfigure you from one degree of glory to the next. The theological word for this is sanctification, to be made more like Christ day by day. But the practice leading to sanctification is confession and forgiveness over and over again. We have to realize how weak we are. We have to fall to the ground in terror, in awe of the glory of God. Sanctification is twofold. It's through the renewal, the transfiguration of your mind, and it's through the transfiguration of your works. It has to be both together. If your sanctification is only in your mind, then your faith is dead, James tells us. And if it's only in your works, then you are blind and aimless, and you don't know your destination, and so so much of your effort will be wasted effort in the wrong direction. There's a reason we do sermons and Bible studies at church, and that every week we care for the poor. You have to do both at the same time and together. Talking about God's love for our neighbors without actually with our hands and feet loving them, there's a word for that in Scripture. It's hypocrisy. And trying to love our neighbors without evangelism and discipleship is to ignore a person's deepest need, which is to know Christ and be reconciled to him, and that that's the only path to true wholeness in Christ. To be changed, to be transfigured in all the ways we most desperately need to change, we have to be changed in word and in deed, both. Talking about doing the works of God is not the same thing as doing them. I'm going to say that one more time because I feel like we've forgotten that in our present day. Talking about doing the works of God is not the same as doing them. And trying to do the works of the kingdom without in humility, giving glory to God, that's not good works, that's pride. May we be a church that seeks to disciple the people who are part of us, both in word and in deed. In order to be free, we have to transfigure our lives and be more like Christ, and that is to say that the Spirit every day has to transfigure and sanctify us. We also need to imitate him as he glorifies God and empties himself both. Just as sanctification is found in the transfiguration of our minds and of our practice, so in the imitation of, uh, the imitation of Christ is found in prayer and in service, both and at the same time. Jesus took his friends to the mountain that day to show him his glory, so that he might, they might know who he really is. He took him there to sanctify them, to transfigure their hearts and their minds, but he didn't just show them his glory. He also left it behind to be with them. He didn't build a booth and stay. He chose instead to pick his friends up off the ground and go back down the mountain with them. It's incredible how low Christ becomes for our sake, even low enough, enough to serve us, even low enough to die in our place on, on a cross. I've been thinking a lot about fourth century monasticism lately. It's a work hazard. Uh, monasticism began, began in the desert uh, with pretty much absolute aestheticism and contemplation, and there was much good in that where contemplation is lacking, the church will only ever be driven like a boat in the winds of culture. <laughs> There's much good in contemplation. But in the fourth century, one monk founded a monastery 
not in the desert, not removed from the population. He founded it downtown in a large city. And they opened the doors. Anyone who was willing to come into the monastery was welcome and was cared for by the men of the order, given food, given clothing, given a bed, given medical care. And through all of that time, they were invited day by day into the spiritual life of the monastery. Prayer and service, both. This is where we get hospitals from our current day and hotels. This kind of outwardly facing monastic life was described a century later in three simple words that mean a great deal to me personally. Ora et labora, meaning prayer and work. Our savior was in the habit of going out into the wilderness, going up on mountains to pray, to commune with God and the saints of old. And he was in the habit of healing the crowds, of feeding and teaching anyone and everyone who would come to eat of the bread of life, washing his disciples' feet. My hope this morning is that through the renewal of our work, through the renewal of our minds, that God would change our hearts and our actions both. That we, like the disciples in our passage, would see Christ and be overwhelmed, be terrified at our state, that we would know Christ and long to be changed. I praise God that he comes to us in ways we can bear, and in ways that we can understand him. My invitation to you this morning is one into transfiguration, into transformation, to marvel at the truth of who Christ is and how humbly he came to imitate him in prayer and in work both. May he transfigure our minds, mouths, hands, and hearts until we can stand to face him unafraid and unveiled, knowing that he who once began a good work in us was faithful to complete it in his day. Pray with me. Father God, Lord, I pray that you would transform us, God, to be glorious like you. Lord, it's hard even to imagine myself in glory, God, because I, of all people, know so deeply my own sin. God, know so deeply my own unworthiness. God, when I think about standing before you as you actually are, God, I, I do tremble at that. Lord, I pray that you would save me from my own sin. God, I pray that you would forgive me. Lord, that you would welcome me both into your fellowship, God, and into your family. God, I pray for the same for each and every person here. God, that where we have made mistakes, Lord, that we would long to be changed. That we would see the life that is abundant in you. God, and desire that. And ask you to bring us from one degree of glory to the next, Lord, day by day. Lord, I know this work will be lifelong. I pray that we would pursue you day by day, lifelong. And I pray this in Jesus' name, so we know you hear us. Amen. We are going to take communion today. In just a moment. To do that, um, this is how this is going to work. We are, yeah, Lewis, I'm going to ask you to come up and Adam and get ready. Um, in just a moment, I'm going to read 
the words of institution. And what I'd like for you to do is just respond today to the sermon by sitting and praying. And whenever your prayer is done, to come up and take part in the communion feast, as you will. Um, I'm going to give it a moment of silence right now. And I'll read the words and come as you will. Uh, please come and take it back to your seat and we'll eat and drink together. God, in this mystery of communion, Lord, I pray that we would meet with you. God, that we would learn day by day to take you in. Lord, to let you comprise us, to make us up, God, to be a part of us. Lord, in and through this, I pray that we would learn, Lord, that when we pray, we pray along with all the saints in every place and time, God. When we eat this feast, Lord, we do it together with all of our spiritual forebears, God, and all of our children who come after us. God, may we glory in our place in your kingdom. Pray this in Jesus' name, so we know you hear us. Amen. And as they were eating, he took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had said, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it, and he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Come as you will, take and eat.
The body of Christ broken for you. Take and eat. Blood of Christ shed for you. stand and join me in the singing of the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures Grace and peace to love and serve the Lord. And peace be with you, Pastor. Thanks, Alex.